Welcome to the Poisoner's Cabinet. I'm Sinead. And I'm Nick. And this is your weekly podcast exploring the lives of the great poisoners and macabre murders from across the centuries and creating curious cocktails inspired by the tales that we tell. And it's episode 91. 91. And it's also December. You threw me for that one. Nin- 91 in December. I thought, how do they work? It's it's December in the year 1991. The, year 91. the 91th of December? No, that's not right either. <laughs> 91th of December and oh December that means nope. no I won't I'm not going to do it I'm not going to do it I'm not going to do it I shall unleash it when you least suspect at it at some Nick. point you will be subjected to Sinead's terrible renditions of Annie the Lennox greatest songs. songs ever written yay oh how are you though Nick am I you're all right I'm you're all right we have our pre-cocktail cocktails I have my pre-cocktail cocktail 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 yes indication of how this episode is yes, going to go I have no idea how many I've had now you have the traditional Negroni uh, the smallest Negroni in the history of oh the world. Oh my god, oh my god. Sinead okay. wouldn't let me make a large Negroni because she's mean and horrible. He was just complaining about how much Campari had left in the bottle. And I said, that's surely that's two ounces, so just do a one one one. And Nick looked at me like I'd come into his house and pissed on his Christmas tree. And pretty much he had. <laughs> Don't you tell me how big to make my Negronis. Clearly I have laid mm. down the law in the wrong way. Been swinging my dick in the wrong bar. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> Don't you come into this chicken coop and call them cows. I just made up a kind of an old right, I, th- I thought that was an amusing quote from somewhere. <laughs> no, it was just bollocks. Bollock. Well, the thing is, you can say any kind of combination of bollocks with conviction, and it can sound like an old-timey phrase. Like, Yeah, that one, didn't they? No, don't stoke my fire with a stick. With, with, with a baguette. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you go. Don't you stoke my fire with a baguette. Good. Any poisonings this week? Mm. Mm. Well, based on what people know what the secret ingredient is, maybe, maybe there shall be. Okay. Who knows what's going to happen? Okay, I'm worried. But, but not yet. Not yet. Yet. None this week you've been building up to this one. Absolutely. Well, speaking of preemptive poisonings and the tiniest Negronis in the world, I think it's time for us to thank our delicious Patreon subscribers, never it's... knowingly drinking small Negronis. No, well, hopefully they have bigger Negronis. So thank you very much to Kanea Lang. To Sarah Gould. To Bonnie. To Chris Leathers. And to Emma, I am Swedish, honestly, Jones. <laughs> Oh, Emma, Emma Jones. Jones. <laughs> I think oh. you're lying to us. <laughs> Brilliant. Please, people, when you are writing in your Patreon names, don't make them more complicated for us to pronounce. But that might be more amusing. But do put in little messages to us. We like that. Emma Jones lies. Lies. You're not Swedish. You're from Norway, clearly. Mm. <laughs> this week on Patreon, we went over some trunk murders. And there are a lot of them. There are a lot of trunk murders. We've covered quite a few, I feel. One of our darling Patreon subscribers then sent an article that listed <laughs> even more. Like the top 10 trunk murders. It literally... Like... Top 11. Oh, top 11. 11. Beg your pardon. <laughs> the top 11 trunk-based murders. Like, what the hell is going on here? Nice. More episodes for the future Absolutely. for us. We have a small reminder for you guys. As we mentioned at the end of the show last week, we are taking a tiny, tiny break in December from the main episode. This is just to give us a couple of weeks where we can write, we can rest, we can drink all the Christmas booze, but mainly so we can build up to our ultra, ultra, uber Christmas special that comes out on the 24th of December. That's when we'll be back. We have a very, very famous case. The Patreon episodes will be going out as normal. So if you're missing us, come over to Patreon. We'll release a bonus episode during that time as well for you all to listen to for free but we promise we will be back so don't panic and rage through the streets rending your garments if you don't hear an episode from us 
We promise we'll be back in time for Christmas. Yeah, why is Christmas scary? Why? What was that voice for for Christmas? Christmas is scary. Is it really? Horror at Christmas. Now that's a tradition I like. <laughs> M.R. James, Christmassy ghost stories, Charles yeah. Dickens, Christmassy ghost stories. Me, just watching horror films over and over and over <laughs> Alien, again. Alien, that classic Christmassy ghost exactly. story. Exactly. You hold up a Santa's hat over the TV, becomes a Christmas film. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, Nick. Yes. Are you ready yeah. to drink cocktails? Talk about poison. What the fuck is going on there? Or, 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 we could drink poison. Hear me out, hear me out. And talk about cocktails. What's it going to be? What are you auditioning for? <laughs> I've decided to start doing this in different I've, I've voices. I've decided I'm going to do voices now. And I will take listener suggestions of which voice and character and actor to do <laughs> each week. Oh, right, so we're doing impressions as well. Oh, this could be fun. Uh, oh, you know what? It's only going to be a laugh, even if I mess it up. What's it going to be? Well, I think we're going to go for a cocktail. Hey, all right. It is Nick's story this week. But as you know, we can't, we can't, we can't possibly have a story without a cocktail in hand. As you know, dear listeners, every week we choose a secret ingredient that is inspired by the tale that we tell and will flavour our cocktail of the week. So Nick's story, his pick. (laughs) And this week's secret ingredient is... It's not a subtle one. I'll I'll give you that. We are just going straight with it. We're going with some lovely cyanide. Some tasty, tasty cyanide. All my family members listening, I love you. And avenge my death. (laughs) Cyanide. Cyanide is a secret ingredient. Okay. Well, there's lots of literary references to cyanide. Obviously, sparkling cyanide, Agatha Mm. Christie. Cyanide has particular scent and flavour. Maybe you're playing with that. You're just going straight in there with a a poison. So we've done poisons before. We we had some arsenic once and we survived that. We barely survived that because we had the arsenic and old lace and I was so drunk after that (laughs) to the point it was only about episode 10 or something like that a lot of that episode is lost because it's me just slurring (laughs) and singing in the middle of it that was an absinthe based cocktail that one so no wonder it's all insane Uh, we must bring the absinthe back soon no we probably shouldn't terrible things will happen with absinthe so we don't want any of that (laughs) but with cyanide much better as the ingredient (laughs) much less terrible what have you come up with well you did hint upon it in your ramblings in a sort of Almondy sort of way. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, unsurprisingly, I'm not actually going to use cyanide because that would be relatively unpleasant. I feel so. I'm, I'm taking a, a, a twang of almond into our cocktail. Love an so, almond, amaretto. Oh, very nice. And remember that cyanide doesn't taste of almonds. No, almonds, almonds taste, taste of, of cyanide. cyanide. Another t-shirt there. The um. more you know, kids. The more <laughs> you know. And it is the season for amaretto. It is. It is the amaretto season. I don't know why Christmas has become the amaretto well, season. You've got sort of like a marzipan thing, so oh, it's an yeah. almondy marzipan on the Christmas cake and stuff. So oh, yeah. that's almonds. So that, that's maybe where that come from. I accidentally did a really, really deep. Oh yeah, when you were <laughs> saying that, and it was unintentional. But that's just my love of almonds coming out there. Okay, but. I hate, oh, I hate marzipan. Uh, Do you hate marzipan? Oh, can't stand marzipan. Oh, no, you've talked about this before, and uh, every time I'm shocked. Love almonds. Can't stand marzipan. marzipan. It's horrible. So we are having, we are having a homely smoke. What? A homely smoke? A homely smoke. I must admit, it's a peculiar name. So not the holy smoke? No, I, that's what I thought initially. I thought, ooh, holy smoke, but it's not. It's a homely smoke. So homely is what, kind of ugly in American. Well, no, no, homely... I, I was thinking it was sort of like, more like sort of a, a roaring fire in a homely cosy sort of way. Oh, right. That's, okay. That's where I went with that. Good. You went with an ugly person. Well, it can mean plain. It can mean plain or in, in, in nastier circles, ugly. Right, you... No, none of that. Oh, no, it's a homely fire. I'm going with a homely, lovely, jolly, 
roaring fire. Roasty roary fire. Roasty Toasting roary. almonds over it. Yeah, exactly. And children. Alternated on a spit. <laughs> they drop some cyanide, <laughs> okay. you know, make the Child. Almond. Child. <laughs> almond. <laughs> they cook at about the same sort of time. <laughs> I'm excited because I love a bit of amaretto. And it's mm. been a while since we've had that in a cocktail. So without further ado, I think it is time for us to go into the Poisoner's Cabinet Kitchen and shake up a storm. So we'll see you in a minute. We'll see you in a bit. And we're back. Hello. So Nick, a homeless smoke. Homeless smoke. Homeless smoke. Oh. With a twang of cyanide on the side. <laughs> Lovely. It is with an amber good one. Yeah, it's a brown it's, drink. It's a good colour. Nice and clear. Nice and crisp. Now, we've had a quite a nice run of cocktails after a few disasters. We have. We We're have. kind of peaks and troughs right now. Yeah. No pressure. We know there's amaretto in it. So a little, I'm going to have a little sniff. Ooh. So I thought all I would smell was almonds, and I don't know if I can smell them at all. So there's a lot yeah, of us... Well, yeah, a little bit, a little bit, but there's other flavours in there, definitely. Well, hopefully, otherwise it's a glass of amaretto. <laughs> which would be fine, which would be fine. Tis <laughs> which the season. is not much of a cocktail, as we said. Yeah. Oh, there's definitely smirkiness in there. more ambitious. Interesting. Okay, well, I think we need to dive mm, in. I'm intrigued. Okay, Merry Christmas. And, Merry and, Christmas. and pray for me, people. Ooh. <laughs> okay, it's past the first test. I haven't died. <laughs> you haven't died? Well, well, give it time. Give it time. <laughs> Nor have I gone blind. Twitching in one eye slightly. <laughs> That's really nice. Yeah. I, I, I'm into that. That's not too shabby. Amaretto is very sweet. Let's just put it out there. It Almonds is. and apricot. It's very, very sweet. Normally, that is not overly sweet at all. It's got just enough sweetness, but it's got a beautiful smoky feel to it. Mm, I like that. I like that a lot. That is reminiscent, I'm going to say it, Ooh, of a oh. red hook. Not not a million miles away, but the same loveliness of a red hook, where you've got a combination the of... Same warming, warmingness. It's sort warm, of. it's got a slight fragrance to it, a slight mm. sweetness without ever overgoing well, amaretto, overdoing maraschino, it. Well, amaretto, maraschino, yes, okay. I'll, no, I'll, I'll, give me that. I'll give you that, I'll give you that. <laughs> They're in the same marzipan, bakewell tart family, if you will. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Classic sort of cocktail family. We've got we've got the sours and then the flips and then the bakewells. And then over here we have the lemon drizzle. And then the, 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 the Kipling family of cocktails. <laughs> oh, now I want cake. But more importantly, I want you to tell me what's in this beautiful right. cocktail. So we have amaretto, as yep. you have correctly deduced. We have cognac. Uh, uh, what? We have a base of cognac. Okay, didn't see that coming. Yeah. We have a dash of single malt. Yeah. Which is where you're getting yeah, your, smoky, your smoky shenanigans. We've got a dash of that. Only a tiny dash. It's enough there to give you a smoky twang. A bit of honey syrup. Ooh. Again, just a, just a drop to take off the harshness. And then some a dash of bitters. A dash of Angostura. Is that all? That's that's the lot. And then just stir, 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 stir. Strainy, strainy, strainy. Strainy, 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 drink it, drink it, drink That's really nice. Yeah, it's a good one. I'm, surpri- I'm surprised, actually. Mm. Usually anything with the whiskey, and I'm like, bleh. In cocktails, it can be really overpowering because okay. it's all you get. But as you said, it's a tiny amount in there. This is a quarter, quarter of an ounce in this. That's not um, much. Which is not much. And then you've got the honey in there as well to temper it slightly. So it's, you get the slightest hint of, of that peatiness in the background. But it's, it's very, very, very subtle. Nothing is particularly overpowering. And you can you can take each of them individually, but nothing overpowers the other one. It's a very well-balanced beverage. Very well-balanced. Homely smoke, terrible name. Terrible, yeah, I mean, I get the smokiness. Where the homely bit comes from, I'm not entirely sure. Shall we rename it something cyanide-based? <laughs> um, um, cyanide and chill. 
Would you like to come over cyanide and chill? I'm going to call it smoking cyanide. Smoking Yay! (laughs) Oh, that's way better than mine. (laughs) Oh, that has so many layers. Like the smoking gun, but then there's cyanide. What went on in this manor house at this weekend? Oh, we have some smoky peachy goodness. Screw the homely smoke. It's a smoking cyanide. You have reinvented it. Put a tiny dash of another ingredient in there and it's yours now. I've added one extra drop of honey syrup. There's an entirely new cocktail (gasps) that I've invented. My my try, actually. Sub the Angostura and put orange bitters. Yes, mate. You've invented a cocktail, Nick. (laughs) But yeah, give it a go. It's really nice. Homely smoke, smoking cyanide, whatever you want to call it. It's your (laughs) night. It's your dollar. It's delicious. Well, Nick, with our delicious cocktails, firmly in hand. Whatever it's called. Smoky cyanide goodness. Is it time for a story, It is certainly Nick? time it for a story. It is time for a story. So this is a long one, so strap in. You ready? Everyone sitting comfortably? So it is Monday the 6th of March, 1944. Okay. Bang mm. up to date, yeah. relatively to this podcast. Bang up to date. Well, for this podcast, but, it's maybe so. Yes. <laughs> no, no one was alive then. <laughs> and people are starting to gather outside 21 Rue Le Sieur in Paris. <laughs> Do not mock my accents. I'm not mocking. It's just funny. Rue That is the most French sounding street. Because it really has no consonants whatsoever. Rue le vowels. In Paris. Now it is a very fancy house. It was once the home of a French princess back in the day. But today there is noxious black smoke. Pouring out of the chimney, causing neighbours to come out and complain loudly about these fumes. Now, the smoke continues for hours and then days. And eventually, someone thinks enough is enough and goes up to the house to complain. Complaining, not alerting the authorities at any point. Well, no, because everyone has... It's it's the time of fireplaces. All the houses are smoking. So just, Uh, it's coming out of the chimney. It's coming out of the chimney. It's not pouring out the windows or anything. Uh, Yes, because I was thinking they were standing there going, that's a bloody nuisance, that is. it's, It's coming out of the chimney, as one would expect expect smoke to come out yes but it is blacker and thicker and more unpleasant mm. than your average chimney smoke blacker than your average smoke <laughs> on the door they find a note reading away for one month forward mail to 18 rue de lombard but they think well half the house is empty yeah who is lighting fires that's unusual i mean that's called a detective we, to well, solve this and they do and they call the police <laughs> to say well perhaps has someone broken in has someone yeah. left fires burning and then mm. left is the house mm. going to burn down all sorts of things called the police and in stereotypical French style the, a pair of officers arrive on bicycles um, quite quite soon after they are called were they both dressed in stripy jumpers I don't onions? know the exact costume if there was a beret or onions or anything that's what uh, took them so long to get there is that they were like we must find onions they had to stop for lunch first <laughs> <laughs> neighbours tell them the owner of the house a Dr Marcel Petiot um, has another house just a couple of miles away and the officers telephone the doctor to see if he has any idea of what was going on in the the ruler sir in the house there now dr petio asks he answers the phone and he asks have they entered the house and when they tell them tell him no he says don't do anything i will be there in 15 minutes what and he hangs up the telephone okay don't go into my house i'll be there in 15 minutes wait for me now half an hour later the smoke is getting worse and worse and worse the officers lose patience um, and they call for the fire department so someone we need to break into this house to see what is going on the firemen arrive and they enter through a second story window but after 10 15 minutes or so they come to the front door one is vomiting the chief tells these officers you have some work ahead of you 
Oh, ho, ho, ho. Okay. The, the officers follow the chief's directions down into the stiflingly hot basement, where a coal stove is burning full blast. The yeah. stove door is open, and a human arm <gasps> is dangling out. Oh, God. Nearby, a pile of coal is mixed with human bones <gasps> and fragments of several dismembered bodies. At first look, it is impossible to tell how many victims are scattered around the basement. Oh dear God. The police leave the basement to go up and get some air and summon reinforcements. They're going to need help on this one. And psychiatric help. Just as Dr. Petio arrives at the house, him also on his bicycle. Why are you making such a thing about the bicycles? I <laughs> Can't be annoyed at someone on a bicycle. Exactly not. Exactly it's so jolly. Not. Now, unsurprisingly, as the doctor approaches, he's looking rather nervous. Um, <laughs> Is that nervous bicycle riding? Nervous bicycling. And as he speaks to the officers, he takes great pains to ascertain that they are, in fact, French themselves when he realizes this he starts to relax slightly dr petio admits to knowing about the bodies in the basement (gasps) adding that they are germans and traitors to our country now of course in 1944 we're in the midst of the second world war and paris and most of france has been under nazi control for several years yeah (gasps) now petio claims to be the head of a resistance group and that he and his group were doing what they could to free france um he claims to have over 300 files at home which must be destroyed before the enemy finds them it would be a disaster if he was taken in and handed over to the the german authorities the french police confer with each other and allow petio to leave what they are french they are furious and bitter about this occupation yeah um, if this man claims to be part of the resistant he claims to have perhaps killed some some germans or some collaborators they're gonna look the other way yeah it's such an easy story to spin isn't it at that wow. time we are fighting the same cause against the enemy who's occupied us is anyone going maybe we should check well <laughs> Maybe we should check. I mean, this is you're up to it. This is still a crime scene, and and cannot be ignored. Uh, <laughs> many people have seen this the horror show downstairs, so yeah. it can't be brushed under the carpet. No, the police so, can't just polish their glasses, going, no, hmm, "Well, get nothing, my glasses checked." Nothing, nothing to see to here. See here. <laughs> they may well have just let their sort of a prime suspect walked away, but they they still need to to do something about it, or to be seen to be doing something about it. (laughs) A lot of pointing. As they explore the house further, in the garage, they they find a large mound of quicklime mixed with human remains, including a recognisable scalp and jawbone. (gasps) But a pit had been dug in the stables, filled with more quicklime, and and corpses in various stages of decomposition. On the staircase leading from the courtyard down to the basement, police find a canvas sack containing the headless left half of a corpse. What? Just the left half? Just Just the left half, split down the middle? Head off, split down the middle, left half in a bag, who knows what happened to the right half? How many bodies are in there? Commissar Georges Victor Massot, a 33-year police veteran, Ooh. immediately takes charge of this case. He examines the house from top to bottom. Um, in the basement, he notes la- sinks large enough to drain corpses of blood. He is still on the scene at 1.30am when a telegram arrives from Paris police headquarters. Mm. It reads... Order from German authorities. Arrest Petio. Dangerous lunatic. What? 
Now, to French patriots, that order only confirms that Petiot is indeed perhaps a hero of the resistance. The Germans are after him as well. So perhaps he is indeed what he claims to be. And the French police make their way very slowly (laughs) to Petiot's home on Rue Comotin, stopping for a coffee, have some lunch. There's no great rush in going to to apprehend Petiot. You know what? Uh, There's no point stoking a fire with a baguette, as we've said. (laughs) As, As we have established. And when they eventually arrive they find the apartment abandoned with no trace of the doctor or his family now after a bit of digging into his background they learn that dr petio had been held by the gestapo in paris for the best part of a year until his release only earlier that year this was yet more confirmation this man was indeed a national hero Mm. and that there really was no rush for them to find him at all he's been held by the gestapo then He's not had a good time. He's not absolutely. He's, he's not had a fun time while there. It was not a relaxing visit, um, and he's been there for a number of months. So he must have done something to piss off the Germans. Hooray for him! Everyone, all the French police think. I think also that you don't have to do a lot to piss off to be held by the Gestapo. <laughs> now back at Rulesur, investigators have pieced together the remains of at least ten victims. Although Chief Coroner Albert Paul tells reporters that the number ten is vastly inferior to the real one. That's a fancy-ass way it's a fancy of saying. It's a, well, you're a coroner in the 40s. You're not going to say things easily, are you? Less. Less. Yes, it's less than the real one. And uh, all that in French as well. In addition to the identifiable bones and body parts, Dr. Paul has catalogued 33 pounds of charred bone, 24 pounds of unburnt fragments, 11 pounds of human hair, including more than 10 whole scalps, and three garbage cans full of pieces too small to identify. Jesus yes, Christ. three dustbins full of bits okay, of Okay, so it's not ten people. It's not ten people. It's a lot more than ten people. Yeah, it's, it's and they're... What? What? What, 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 what? I, I'm, I'm really blown away by this. <laughs> this, is a, this is a lot, Nick. You didn't, you didn't prep me for this. Oh. Now, the oldest victim that they find appears to be a 50-year-old man. The youngest, a 25-year-old woman. None <laughs> bore any knife or gunshot wounds. Poison cannot be ruled out from the samples that they were had access to. At Petio's apartment on the Rue Cormatin, police find jars of chloroform, digitalis, strychnine, various other poisons and unpleasantness could there have been a, one other poison that was found there not the one that's the the secret ingredient is there maybe another poison you'd no, like to mention they, they, that was not found anywhere not not, not one beginning not, with a no that no, no they didn't find it anywhere no, but there the, were various other they, poisons. they looked for it they, they looked, looked and specifically said there was no of that of, of what <laughs> do you really want me to say arsenic <laughs> Arsenic alarm! Arsenic alarm! Arsenic alarm! No! No, people! No! There was no arsenic! You all stop that! You will stop calling out for arsenic! I won't have it! <laughs> what they did find, as long as, as well as all the other bits and pieces, was 50 times a typical doctor's supply of heroin and morphine. So he was having a great party time. That was a good weekend. That was, that was a great weekend for Dr. Petio. It's, I mean, um, it's not an active weekend. <laughs> this, this is true. Now, the bodies that they have found in the basement, now, they do not, to the, the coroner, look like the bodies of soldiers, really. No. Or any sort of occupying invasion force. Yes. Um, many look quite frail. So if these were the bodies of the enemy, who exactly are there? There was definitely something odd and something not quite right about Dr. Petio and his claims, but he has gone. 
He has vanished. Because the police let him walk away. Because the police let him walk away. Do not know what happened to the officers who did let him walk away. No doubt there was perhaps a stern talking to. By someone who also let them walk away. (laughs) I was doing it for the good of a country. Oh, well, nothing to see here. Goodbye. Sidestepping out of the country into Switzerland. Maybe so. Maybe so. Now, as they delve further back into Dr. Petio's background, they become more and more convinced that the man who has presented himself as this hero of the French resistance was not at all what he was seemed, and that he may actually be just a cold-blooded killer. A few years prior, in February 1942, Dr. Petio had been implicated in the illegal supply of prescription drugs. An addict named Jean-Marc Van Biver... Um, You're only going to say that again, man. (laughs) Jean-Marc Van Biver, or Van Beaver. (laughs) Jean-Marc Van Beaver. John... Jean-Marc. Jean-Marc. Van. Van. Beaver. Beaver. B-E-V-E-R. It's definitely beaver. (laughs) I say beaver. 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 Him. He, so he... Beaverman. Beaverman has been arrested for the drug use and has pointed the finger quite squarely at Dr. Petio as his supplier. A few days before his trial, when he was going to give evidence against Dr. Petio, he disappears and is never seen again. Then in March, another addict, Raymond Boudet, is jailed. He too identifies Dr. Petio as his supplier. At Raymond's trial, his mother Martha rails against the doctor, blaming him for all of her son's woes. Just as the police were starting to take more interest in Dr. Petio and his potential Mm -hmm. supplying of drugs, Martha vanishes. No! Police think, have they just found some of the remains of Jean-Marc and Martha in the basement? Oh my god. Mm-hmm. He's supplying people drugs and then these people disappear. People who are questioning him, people who are going to turn against him, oh have a habit of, of disappearing. The further back they look, the more alarm bells start ringing. Even reports from his childhood paint a picture of a rather disturbed young man. Is um, much known about his childhood. A great deal is actually known about his childhood. Um, at the age of 11, he takes his father's revolver to school and shoots at his history teacher. <laughs> um, thankfully missing the history teacher, um, but still discharging her firearm in the classroom he was also another report also explained how he put on a circus show for his classmates yes um standing a friend against a door and throwing knives at him (laughs) to entertain his classmates that was his circus show that was his circus show that was one terrified pupil going (laughs) pretty much Oh, we're going to try that this Christmas. <laughs> Good luck with that. Good luck, Beth. Pay people tickets. Like, there's a circus in our hometown. Come, children, watch. It's just me hurling knives at people. He was an incredibly intelligent young man, but he is just not able to concentrate in class. He does not have the attention span, and he is eventually expelled for unruly behaviour and overexcitation. Oh. they claim. Things develop into petty crime, and he is sent to a psychiatrist who declares him an abnormal youth suffering from personal and hereditary problems which limit to a large degree his responsibility for his acts. It is enough to get all charges dropped, with the judge declaring that the accused appeared to be mentally ill. Ugh. Issues, issues. Yeah, well, indeed. Probably not mentally ill. Probably not. It was the style, it was the at, style the time. at the time. Indeed. At the outbreak of the First World War, he is drafted into the French army, but is eventually discharged, mm. with doctors diagnosing him as suffering from mental disequilibrium, mm. mental depression, melancholia, Obsessions and phobias. 
all... It's a lot. Yes, there's a lot going on there. Assertions and phobias. Don't specify what phobias, just phobias, all of them. All of them. I'm <laughs> afraid of everything. And I'm obsessed with it. I'm absolutely obsessed with yeah. all the things that terrify me. And it's always good that there's mental depression rather than physical depression. Well, absolutely, yes. That my body is not deflating as I try to serve my country, <laughs> but my brain is very troubled by yes. it all. I also like the idea of mental disequilibrium. I, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. I've not heard that phrase before and I love it. And um. that's so apt for this day and age, actually. It's a, it's a phrase that you could bring back in while we are much more comfortable talking about, you know, mental illness and, and, and mental health. I'm saying, yeah, my brain is just not balanced. Like, I've got mental disequilibrium. Yes. That's a good one. I just need to recalibrate. As a result of, say, as a result of all this, he is discharged from the, from the army. Now, after the, the war, the, after the First World War, the French government is, is keen to get as many people back into work as possible. Mm. Um, they need to fill the many, many, many jobs that have been left by the hundreds of thousands of people who have been killed during the conflict. So they had introduced an accelerated education program for veterans to get them trained quickly and back into work. Petio enrolls on this scheme and is able to complete his full medical training to become a doctor in eight months. What? Speedy doctors. What? That's what they need. So eight, uh, eight months. Eight months to get his medical degree. Okay. Uh, no. <laughs> kind of medicine was he practicing oh, all, all of it, it. all oh, of it, all of it. he now oh, knows good. all medicine okay good um, good 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 eight months he knows it all why aren't we all doctors <laughs> i think they may have stopped the scheme by now i have to say oh, oh my god <laughs> the system screwing us all now armed with his new medical knowledge petio moves to the town of villeneuve sur yun oh i know that do you well, heard of it. And as soon as he arrives, he begins advertising his doctorly services, putting himself slightly at the odds of the town's existing two slightly elderly doctors. <laughs> his flyers read, Dr. Petio is young, and only a young doctor can keep up to date on the latest methods born of progress, which marches with giant strides. This is why intelligent patients have confidence with him. Dr. Petio treats, but does not exploit his patients. Ooh. Excellent flyer, my film. That's a very good flyer. Yeah, it's a good old flyer. God, the guy's good at marketing. <laughs> Absolutely. Ooh. Now, outwardly, he is charming and popular um, with all of his patients, but secretly, he also enrolls them for state medical assistance, ensuring mm. that the state pay him and they pay him as well. So he gets paid twice for each patient. Clever boy. His habit for thievery never leaves him, though. And even his brother Maurice insists on searching his pockets every time the doctor visits um, his home to make sure he's not thieving anything. His to, brother? His own brother insists on searching him when he comes to visit. Oh, nice. Oh, <laughs> because he good. has such a reputation. History of stealing everything in sight. <laughs> he was evicted by a landlord once after stealing and selling on all the furniture in the house. But he ignored threats to turn him in, saying that he was a certified lunatic. He would never be convicted. Oh, that's It's worked scary. for him in the past. Thievery... Yeah. He's, he's got away with it. A judge has dismissed the case because he's mad. And he's that's, convinced it's going to work for him for all time. That's really unsettling. Mm. Oh, I'll come back to that. <laughs> Writing that down, sorry. At the beginning of 1926, Petio shocks the sleepy town by launching a very public affair with uh, Louise Delaveau, the daughter of one of his patients. Please, Delaveau. <laughs> now, by May of that same year, Louise has herself disappeared. Petio and Louise had not been subtle in their carryings-on, and the police start asking questions. Who was the last person to see Louise? Mm. Where has she gone to? Now, neighbours recall seeing Petio load a large trunk 
into his car. Not a trunk. Indeed, <laughs> another <laughs> trunk. That trunk was was later fished out of the river, um, <gasps> filled with dismembered, decomposing remains Ooh. of a young woman. Um, but this is entirely coincidental, the police think. Right. This is entirely coincidental. They cannot identify the young woman in the trunk. She's a bit too far gone in yeah. the decomposition. And the entire case is dismissed. Louise is obviously a runaway. She has run away from home. Nothing more to be seen here. Go about your business. What's going on? <laughs> so, yeah. What's going on? So, uh, no, I'm sorry. I, I'm I, getting, I don't know the answer get, to that I'm question. I'm getting too annoyed about this. It's like, you know, okay, dead body in a trunk. Dead body. The, the, he, he's seen putting a trunk into a car. What a trunk is found on the river with a dead person in. Not connected at all. <laughs> so there okay, was, there there was, was no nothing. Trial. There was no investigation. It's fine. It's absolutely fine. Now, despite the rumours that do surround the good doctor, he is mm. still a very, very popular man. Um, and he decides to run for mayor. The mayor of Villeneuve sur Yon, in one of his final campaign debates with his opponent. After he has finished speaking, one of his supporters cuts power to the auditorium, blacking out the entire village and starting several fires. Um, what? <laughs> and Petio wins by a landslide. Wait, so he cut the power of the person's speech. Yeah, so he, he's And fi- then he's set finished- the town on fire. Oh, no, I think that was probably an accidental thing caused by the cutting the power. Was so it? Perhaps some sort of transformer overloaded or something. Set a few fires around. Um, Based on this, I don't think it was. <laughs> Potentially. Potentially. That is one way to win an election, Well, I mean, people. absolutely. I mean, it's political genius, really, I feel. I mean, Trump 100% would have done that. <laughs> he was that close, actually, in the, the, the recent election of just like, cut the power and just set everything on fire and then I'll win. So, oh, yes. my God. <laughs> he would stay in villeneuve sur for the next eight years. Yeah. Now, this time is filled with multitudes of craziness that we do not have time to go into, unfortunately. Okay. There's thievery, affairs, overdoses of patients, but more suspected unpleasant murderings, but no one's quite sure, so no one does anything about it. But eventually, after eight years, the townspeople cotton on that there's something not quite right with their mayor, and he is booted out of office. And he leaves and he moves his family to Paris in January 1933. Now, in Paris, Petiot promotes his services with his typical enthusiasm, offering patients a wide variety of treatments. One of his adverts claimed him to have had experience at a particular mental hospital, but neglected to mention that it had been as a patient rather than as a doctor. (laughs) A slight omission, potentially. I mean, it's fair enough. Yeah, sure I mean, would you would you really advertise that? Yes, I I spent many many years at such and such hospital. It was a very successful time. This is the nuance of marketing, and this <laughs> is the nuance of your CV, people. You can always say I have a great experience of this area because you did the bad thing with it rather than the good thing. Now, with his charming bedside manner, he attracts a huge number of clients to him, and he builds up an exemplary reputation. Years later, at the height of his infamy in the, the late 1940s, the police would interview over 2,000 patients and not a single one had a bad word to say about him. At the same time, however, rumours start to spread that Petio is also offering services that are not entirely above board, potentially. Rumours get around that he was an abortionist for the right price. He would supply addicts with their drugs Mm. at the right price under the guise of of cures. In 1934, 30-year-old Raymond Hans visited Petio for treatment for an abscess in her mouth. She's still unconscious when Petio drove her home after surgery. She never regains consciousness what? and dies several hours later oh from this God. botched operation. In 1940, everything changes and German troops march into Paris. 
the new Vichy government, orders a ceasefire and 40,000 French soldiers surrender to the occupying forces. Now, for a brief time, Dr. Petiot's patriotic side does actually come out and he begins providing false medical certificates to Frenchmen, drafted for forced labour. He treats sick and wounded workers on their return from the factories. All the time, though, spinning tales of patriotic battles that were never fought, experiences with the resistance of of this cunning deed and that heroic action, Mm. all of which complete nonsense. He claimed to have invented secret weapons that killed Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. The big Nazi gun. The big Nazi, anti-Nazi gun. Yep. Um, and that he was in regular contact with Allied commanders, planning mm. it all. It is, of course, all nonsense. He's a very good spin doctor, isn't he? Oh, completely. He? Absolutely. It he seems is... like his entire career is based on him making up stories, mm. being able to spin a good lie that people trust him, probably has complete faith in his ability. Sure. but is telling people the things that they want to hear to have that extra level of reassurance. Mm, absolutely. But he, he soon tires of writing these false notes. It is an incredibly dangerous thing if he gets caught. If he's caught by the German authorities writing these sort of counterfeit notes, he would be really in trouble. And worst of all, really, it doesn't pay very well. By the end of 1940, Dr. Petiot has devised a much better scheme for making cash. He has found a way to smuggle people out of France, he says. And there are a great many people looking to get out of the occupied country. Now, he welcomes Jews, resistance fighters, petty criminals, anyone who could afford to pay the 25,000 franc fee. (sighs) 25,000 francs ahead. Now, this for this, he promises safe passage to South America, complete with all the necessary travel papers for a new life in Argentina. In 1941, no. he buys the house at 21 Rue oh, Le Sur as a, as a way station for his personal underground railroad. Now, among his early customers are two Parisian petty criminals, Joseph and Adrien, who had recently expanded into armed robbery, like one does, and they are on the run from both the French and German place. So they seek help from Dr. Petiot from themselves and their accomplices. The group pay their fees and arrive at 21 Rue Le Sur and are never heard from again. <gasps> oh, God. Dr. Paul Leon Braunberger an elderly Jew who planned to flee with his wife, disappears after a meeting with Petio. A month later, the Nella family vanish after discussions with Petio. Their dismembered remains are fished out of the Seine in August. Three more refugees, the Wolf family, disappear into 21 Rue Sur, along with six other friends. Now, none of these desperate people ever make it out of the house, let alone to South America. He tells them when they are in the house that a condition of their acceptance into Argentina is that all entrants must be inoculated against disease. Luckily, he is a doctor. He has the right medicines that will provide that inoculation. And he can do it right now. No extra charge. It's all good. Oh, he isn't. Each person is given an injection of cyanide. (gasps) And they die convulsing on the basement floor. Their bodies then dismembered, thrown into the Seine, buried in pits of quicklime, or simply thrown into the furnace. Jesus Christ. By April 1943, rumours of this secret escape network have reached the Gestapo in Paris. Um, and they decide that it has to be stopped. They believe right. it is a very, very real thing that, oh. that someone is helping these these enemies of Germany escape justice and escape Europe. They believe it is, an, it is a very real thing and it must be well, stopped. no one's turning up, Well, indeed. That these people are never heard from again. What's, yeah. the, what's the explanation? They are actually getting on boats and going to South America. They blackmail a Frenchman. 
even Dreyfus, into approaching this network to see what he can find out. Dreyfus himself is never heard from again. Wow. Now the Casapo think they have got a major French resistance group working here, orchestrating huge numbers of people escaping the country, um, escaping Europe to, to anywhere, who knows? And eventually, after a great many arrests and interrogations, the finger is pointed at Marcel Petiot as the ringleader behind it all. He is arrested. He is held for eight months, during which he is repeatedly interrogated, probably very uncomfortably, mm. by Gestapo officers looking for more information on the resistance. Much to their frustration, Petio never gives up a single name. Doesn't know. Because he doesn't know any. Absolutely. He has not a single name to give. And eventually they release him. Wow. Well, I, mean, I guess he doesn't know anyone, so he, he doesn't can't know, give yeah. a name. Absolutely. He makes you wonder what names he did give. Well, that's that very true, yes. That were false to yes. get himself out of it. Yes, he must have done something to get himself out of it. Although they just could not pin anything on him. They, everyone else has said it's him, but they've got no evidence. I don't know how strict they were following the, really the rule of law mm. um, in those situations, but they did release him. And they released him in January 1944. Mm. Now we know that by March of that year, the horrors in the basement at Rue Sur had been revealed and Petio had vanished. Now, loyal friends and patients refuse to believe that the doctor could have been responsible for anything so monstrous. And they move him from place to place, one always one step ahead of his pursuers. And during his time in hiding, he grows a beard and takes to calling himself Henry Valère. Okay. As a, as a pseudonym. In late 1944, as the German forces start to withdraw from France, Henry Valère joins the new French forces of the interior, this new armed force that was meant to clear the rest of the Germans out of the country. Mm. And he is quickly commissioned as a captain in this new force, and he's put in charge of counter-espionage and interrogation of prisoners in Paris. So quite a senior position. As the French government reasserts control of the city, resistant newspapers start publishing, and they publish pamphlets listing the names of collaborators on the run. One of the names is Dr. Marcel Petio. <laughs> the article brands him a soldier of the Reich, responsible for the deaths of Jews, resistance fighters, and a great number of French citizens. Ah. A man who is now currently on the run. <laughs> a fresh search begins for Dr. Petio. The, the original one has slightly fizzled out, really, but now a new search is pursued. And the new and enthusiastic Captain Henri Valère is given the task of tracking down Dr. Marcel Oh, shut up! Perrault. No! <laughs> How did he get that gig? What, how was this turned into Angel Heart? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so Captain Henry is now tracking down himself. Okay. Um, throughout Paris. Oh, <laughs> just so many reports saying, oh, there's a shootout going on with us. Oh, I'll get you, I'll get you. Yeah, 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 goodbye. Oh, my now, God. Now, now, fortunately, this sort of cat and mouse one person cat and mouse game doesn't go on for too long yeah um, yeah that's a lot of skills and a lot of you know, yeah. drama and special effects that you have to put on uh, because he is eventually he is recognized as dr petio at a mm. paris metro station he is reported there police swiftly arrest him at the time of his arrest he is carrying a pistol 32,000 francs and an assortment of 50 different documents in six different names so potentially they think is he trying to do a runner? Yeah, he's trying to get he's away. He's trying to get away now. He's trying to escape. Now, from the outset, Petio declares himself innocent of mm. everything. Of course. He admits killing certain enemies of France as a resistance member, but outright denies any murders for profit 
or anything like that. In his testimony, he says he first becomes aware of the corpses stashed at 21 Rue Lucia in February 1944, after his release from the Gestapo, mm. um, and that he assumed that these dead collaborators um, had been killed and dumped by other members of his resistance cells. Okay. He is held at Sante Prison while the authorities investigate his claims. Strangely for a man who claimed to be such a patriotic hero, mm. um, not a single member of any known resistance group came to his defence, or even said that they knew him. A few wow. perhaps recognised him, but only as a small-time hanger-on, or as a straight-up fraud. The groups that Petio described in great detail turned out to be entirely fictional. Prosecutors finally dismissed Petio's resistance story and charged him with murdering 27 people simply for the money. An estimated 200 million francs in cash, gold and jewels that was never recovered. Whoa! I love a lot of cash. There's a lot of cash. Awful lot of cash. The trial begins on March the 18th, 1946, in front of a panel of three judges and seven and a seven-man jury. The prosecution is also assisted by 12 private lawyers that have been hired by the relatives of his victims okay, nice. to support the state <laughs> prosecution. So there's a whole army of people on one side of the courtroom. Trial, Petio's natural charm comes out and he takes a lead role in his own defence, bantering with the judges and prosecutors, grilling witnesses <laughs> himself, um, exchanging witty jibes with these private attorneys yeah he had a response to every charge leveled against him joseph recruit he was a collaborator he deserved to die wakim gusanov he was alive and well and living in south america now when asked for any contact details can we get in touch with him he simply smirks and replies south america is a big place yeah yeah easy he admits to a meeting the dr paulian bromberger for 10 minutes in my life, he said, at a public luncheon. But he can't explain why Brumberger's clothes have been found at 21 Rue Le Sur. Mm. At one point, he is chastised by the chief judge for doodling in court. Petio says, I'm listening, but it doesn't really interest me very much. Oh, my God. <laughs> such is the arrogance But such the is man. the arrogance in being able to play this role and going, I'm completely convinced of my own innocence my own in this role. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'll get away with this. During the final summation, Petio's lawyer gives a rousing speech, hailing the Doctor as a hero of the resistance. And those watching seem to be buying it, and that it earns the lawyer a standing ovation in court oh my for God. his stirring words. <laughs> but the, the judge and jurors are less easily convinced, yeah. thankfully. And after a three-hour deliberation, he is declared guilty on 126 out of the 135 criminal charges that have been filed against him. Fair enough. Um, that is 90 seconds deliberation per charge. <laughs> so, yeah, he did so it, he did it, he did it, he did it, he did it. Sandwiches, sandwiches, sandwiches. His lawyers tried to appeal, claiming that he hadn't received a fair trial, that reporters were biased against him and had influenced the jury, but it was no good. He is sentenced to death. As he is marched from his cell, he refused the traditional glass of rum, but accepts a cigarette. Past the prison chaplain, telling the minister, I am not a religious man and my conscience is clean. Wow. He is strapped to the sliding table on the guillotine. He turns to the few witnesses there, saying, Gentlemen, I ask you not to look. This will not be very pretty. The blade drops at 5.05am and Petio's smiling head tumbled into the basket. <laughs> that is the terrifying tale of Dr. Marcel Petio. Oh my God, Nick. 
Great story. I was on tenterhooks all the way through there. Like, what the shit? It was a mad one. Absolutely crazy, crazy times. It's Ah. so mad. And again, I'll say that after 91 episodes, we can still pull the odd story out of the bag where I've gone, what the, what the, what? Whatting hell. Whatting hell is what I will say. Such a good actor, I guess. Absolutely. Such entirely convincing. So charming and suave and... So convincing, such a good liar that everyone is completely taken in by his yeah. by his act. They say that about the you know the worst serial killers and sociopaths and psychopaths and whatever you want to call them through history. The ones who are just able to convince themselves, no, this is the lie I'm going to tell, and I'm just going to stick to it, and I absolutely believe it, and I'm absolutely be able to be this charming and this flippant about death. About the number of people he killed. The, when you're describing his scenes in the courtroom, there's I think there's an American Dad episode where Roger plays a <laughs> plays a defendant, and he's so charming, everyone wants to let him off. It's like, yes. no, he's awful, he's evil. <laughs> yes, absolutely. At the beginning of the story, the things about his childhood, it does feel like everyone who met him at the time the the ignorance around mental illness in that day and age was just like he's just guilty of everything he has everything going on he's mentally and physically and he's just got this and the stuff coming out of his feet i don't know but his mind is doing it so he was never going to get any help and never any recognition for it so i suppose left untended he was thinking okay clearly had a darkness to him well absolutely and it and it only sort of exacerbated his belief that he could get away with it because yeah. he, he had been in the, the First World War. He was discharged. He, he didn't like... There was actually a story that after a particular battle, he actually shot himself in the foot to be discharged. Now, but that you, was would, not be, you a, would be killed for that. Well, they, but it, it was done in such a way that he was actually sent to a mental institution for for that. Wow. So there, And there were a number of tales like that. Um, Another one where he was in a, in a hospital after a genuine wound, and he was caught stealing blankets. So there, there was a number of number of things like that. He he was always diagnosed as as a mental condition, yeah. and and he got away with it because yeah. well you're not fit to stand trial, or you're not fit for this, or you're not fit for that. So you're not guilty of what you've done because of because of these mental issues that you supposedly have. And if you um, keep getting that diagnosis, exactly, then you go, you're okay, going to be convinced I'm that I can do whatever I want because. I ha- I've done whatever I want and no one has come after me. No. And also to, to play up in that way, because he's clearly a very clever person. He was clearly oh, absolutely. very intelligent enough to play the odds against everyone else to go, okay, all I need to do is play insanity. Many people have tried to do it many, many times over the years <laughs> and go, I'm crazy. Like, no, we can clearly see that you are capable mm. of standing trial and receiving counsel. But with him, people have deemed him is in, is insane. So mm. they go, okay, I just need to do it this way. Yeah, he's worked out the formula for it, and clearly it's happened. It's happened over and over yeah, again. Yeah, well, and it's worked for him before. What's and interesting? What's happened that... during the war as well is that I'm really surprised, as you said, mm. if he shot himself in the foot. What's interesting though is that he didn't take that tactic. His final trial, he he went very much down the line of, I'm innocent. Yes, I've yes I've killed people, but I've killed people because they were the enemies of France. We were at war. So that was very much the tack he was taking. So obviously perhaps realising that the insanity thing is not going to work here. No, but he's found a better way because in the middle of the war, if he was in front of a house and there were dead bodies and the police were investigating found human remains and he was able to say, maybe he was taking a punt that day just by saying, these are enemies of France. I have been 
killing the Gestapo, I have been killing people who are threatening us. Mm. And the police went, you're all right, mate, walk away. He's gone, okay, I've tapped into a a bit of public feeling. So he's going to carry that on. And as you say, if people are standing up applauding him in court, then he's going, fine, Mm. fine, I'm going to go down that route. Sadness of that case. You know, every case we cover is, is terribly sad for the victims, but during the war anyone who came to him for genuine help I mean he's exploiting people who are absolutely desperate at that point knowing what's going to happen if they don't get out of Paris if they don't get out of France they know what's going to happen to them yes and that's not going to end well and all he's thinking is well they're going to die anyway anyway, I can make 25,000 francs out of this yeah I'm going to make money out of that literally someone who is going to be murdered who's going to be persecuted yep give me all the money you possibly have and then I'll just get rid of them because Mm. who cares I mean, the coldness of that, and it's so horrible to think of people coming in their last desperate act, and that's how they went. Don't want to dwell on it. It's it's bloody horrible. But again, it made me think about when he was arrested by the Gestapo, was he just able to spin the tale another way with the Gestapo? Because we were going, well, well, why did they let him go? Because if he gave them no names, he must have given names. He is a survivor. He must have given names of someone or he would try to throw the blame on someone else because the Gestapo and the SS, they're not light in their torture and their methods no, of extracting information. But they've also, They're not going to break the law. Well, that, that, I mean, that's the thing because I think perhaps if they were in Germany or one of those occupied or Eastern Europe occupied countries that things may have been slightly different. But mm. when they're in France, they've got to maintain this illusion of doing things by the rules. If everyone in France decided to rise up, they would probably <laughs> they, they wouldn't last very long. Um, yeah. But so they, they've got to maintain this illusion of we are doing things by the book. We are doing things fairly the, and legally. But so, they're not amateurs. They're not amateurs. No. You would think with the good doctor, in inverted commas, he would have met his match with the SS because they are, you know, masters of mind control and also masters of manipulating people. It made me think, though, did he just play double agent? In, in one way and go all the people in the house they were all trying to escape France I was working for you guys no, or maybe so I they were and I can prove it because I've mm. got all their paperwork I've got yeah. all of their possessions and I can prove these people were trying to flee the country and I'm doing you a favour and go and search my house and just mm. don't mention it because I don't want to get in trouble with the authorities but I'll keep working for you that's a oh, yeah. chilling thought of that the, a, that's a terrifying thought that had not, had, crossed, that had not crossed my mind he's a survivor well, he's well, going to say sure. whatever he needs to and he mm. would have had all the evidence right in his house of what those poor people were facing and the Gestapo's going to go you know what mate you're doing a good job fine thanks thank you I mean if he's a psychopath killing people <laughs> they're not really going to care are they if it's no. mopping stuff up. Mm. But still, Doctor's greatest poison of them all! <laughs> Indeed. Oh, there was so much to that story. Wow. <laughs> Fascinating. It's a good story. Everyone thought, oh, he's just killing the enemy in the underground. He was just murdering people for money. Mm. In the middle of the war. How much the war covers up. Well, indeed. But still, excellent French names. Excellent. I'm glad glad you like the French names. (laughs) Well, what do you think, people? What a great story. Lots of layers to that. Have there been films or books, fictional books made of this? Have there been films of this one? There is a film, but a French film. Um, Yay. That I've not seen because it's in French. Well, okay, Philistine over there. Like, oh, it's French, I won't watch it. <laughs> yes. What do you think of the story, everyone? Just dive in with the comments. Do you think he was playing the double agent across the Gestapo, across the French resistance? Was he just someone who was able to survive? Was it just the loopholes or the, the failings 
of examining mental health back in those days that he was able just to carry on practicing whatever it was he was trying to <laughs> yes. do i mean it just feels like it was greed that yeah. was it he was very 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 smart and greedy and thought yeah why not but why not? jump on the comments of this episode of wherever you listen to this and on social media tell us what you think of the story but most importantly do 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 try a homely smoke or cyanide. What did I call it? Smoking, smoking cyanide. Smoking s- cyanide. Smoking cyanide. Give it a go. I mean, it's really good. They've gone down the train. I'm very yeah, drunk. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm only medium drunk. Medium drunk. Nick had six cocktails before this. Yeah. It was fine. But he still banged out a great story, guys. <laughs> so the recipe will be out on Friday, as usual. Do let us know what you think. Send us your pictures and all those sorts of things. If you don't fancy a, a smoking cyanide... What are you going to make instead? I'm intrigued to know. And as we said, we are going to be taking a short break in December. So for the next couple of weeks, there will be no main episode as you would normally hear it. We are going to be on Patreon, but we will be back for Christmas time with a very, very big special episode. And come over to Patreon if you haven't joined already. We've got some special guests on Patreon this month. Some really, really good stories, old and new. A wonderful time to join. And if you have friends who are fans of the Poisonous Cabinet or if you're all in a little group and you all get together with a nice warm cup of cocoa with rum in it to listen to the Poisonous Cabinet, it's a very good gift that you can give, the Patreon subscription. You can pay for an annual subscription. It's not that much. Or a monthly subscription, completely flexible. Dive in, see what you think, but we'd love to hear from you. The merch store is still open. There was a glitch with the merch store this week. If anyone has been having trouble accessing our merch on teespring please let us know we've sent some messages sometimes it was showing up blank but do let us know if you're having any trouble with teespring it's probably just gone down because everyone's ordering stuff for christmas Mm. on teespring across all of the podcasts not just ours but probably just ours and tell your friends about the poisonous cabinet december is a wonderful time to start listening to podcasts when you want to escape your family (laughs) and need more drinking ideas Thanks for listening, guys. We have been the people inside the Poisoner's Cabinet. We will see you on Christmas Eve. And remember, your loved ones are trying to kill you. Bye.